You're listening to Truth To You with Jono and G'day. Wherever you may be around the world, it is good to have your company. It is time for Pearls from the Torah Portion with Keith Johnson and Nehemia Gordon. G'day, fellas. Hey, g'day. Uh, it's great to be here talking to you from Jerusalem. And I'm doing a shout out to Judy B, who listens but doesn't have Facebook. Thank you for the grapefruit, Judy. You got a grapefruit? Okay. Uh, it's time for the pearls from the Torah portion. Hey, we're in. Uh, I, I can never pronounce Akaremot. Akaremot. Thank you, Leviticus 16 1, 18 30. And it begins like this. Are you ready? Hey, so this is the this is sure. Yom Kippur, right? This is the day of atonement. Now, Yehovah spoke to Moses <laughs> after the death of the two sons of Aaron, and that was unfortunate, when they offered profane fire before Yehovah and died. Now, before I go on, Nehemiah, this is one of those cases where we've sort of, you know, we've talked about a whole bunch of other stuff and we've just sort of digressed something that happened a little while ago. What happened was uh, the two sons of Aaron uh, approached with uh, profane fire or strange fire and they were consumed by Yehovah. They were burnt up. They were crispy. It's actually very possible, or I guess not just possible, this apparently is something that was revealed immediately after those events, Mm -hmm. um, or could have been shortly after those events. And, and these intervening chapters may have just been inserted um, because that was the topic that was being dealt with. Okay, so here we're dealing with these issues of, of priests and purity, and let me throw all that stuff in. And remember how we said, you know, each section of the first, really the first, I don't know, 15 or so chapters of Leviticus starts out with, you know, this is the Torah of this, and this is the Torah of that. The, and each of those presumably one time was a separate scroll, um, like Leviticus 15 probably was one single scroll. And those may have just been sewn together in that order because they were topically significant. Um, and then he comes in here and says, okay, well, this is what Yehovah said after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Mm-hmm. And why is this being inserted here? Well, that's because um, the the sacrifice that's described here, which is the, the, the ceremony of the, of the of the Day of Atonement, part of it is to, um, it is to well, you see in verse 11, it says he shall uh, atone for him and for his house. And so basically up until this point, they haven't really been given a mechanism for atonement, and when they sin, God lashes out with fire. Mm-hmm. And so now He's setting up this atonement, this uh, system, so that okay, you people don't aren't just going to be burned up every time, but there's going to be some kind of system because I know you're not perfect and I know you sin, and and I love you and I don't want to destroy you. And so God gives us these different mechanisms that we can then use to uh, when there's some genuine repentance to then mm-hmm. get atonement. And there it is. And so. Uh, so that his sons died. And verse 2, And Yehovah spoke to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, do not come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is uh, on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull, of a sin offering, uh, and of a ram, of a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic. Hey, now here's some of those ancient clothes that I like so much. Oh, man. Okay, so hold on. Yeah. Hold on now. So um, I want to clarify something very quickly because there's a translation issue here I just want to, I want to bring up. Oh, 16, and this is applic- application actually. So it says here, um, it, it, when he died, he approached uh, Yehovah. Yehovah said, almost tell your brother Aaron not to come wherever he chooses to the most holy place. Now very quickly, the most holy place we all agree would be where? Behind he, the curtain, correct? Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Oh, verse three. Verse three. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. Mm-hmm. Now, this is how Aaron is not is to enter. And in my my NIV, my nearly inspired version that most Methodists read, it says in verse three, "This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area." Really? So, my question oh. is this. Now, That's I'd like to hear idea. what your ver- version is, and then Nehemiah, I would like you also to give a little Torah pro her hint, hint. <laughs> so, 
Jono, can you give us the Australian version? Okay, so the, verse 3, right? What, what I've got yeah. is, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place. Now, place is in italics, so it actually says, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy with the blood of a young bull. Well, what I've got is the blood of in italics as well. So really, if you take the italics out, what it says is, Aaron shall come into the holy with a young bull as a sin offering, uh, and I suppose referring to the blood, and the ram as a burnt offering, Nehemiah. Yeah, so look, so you have really three sections, and I think we've talked about this. You have the, the, the courtyard, the holy, and the holy of holies, and in the temple that becomes then um, really the th same three, that's in the tabernacle, and the same th three sections are essentially uh, transferred um, into the, uh, in a form into the, the temple itself. And, um, and what he's talking about here is he just shouldn't come to the Holy of Holies whenever he wants. And then here's this process. He starts off in the Holy, does all these sacrifices, and then eventually the only way he's allowed to come into the Holy of Holies is, uh, it's described later on in the chapter, he brings the incense uh, burner full of, um, or the, the burner full of incense. He sticks it inside behind the curtain before he actually goes in. Once it fills up a, a cloud full of incense, only then is he allowed to then go in. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it prevents him from actually looking upon the Ark of the Covenant, um, which he's not supposed to, um, he's really, no one is really supposed to see. And um, so he's essentially standing before the Ark of the Covenant, and all he sees is this cloud of smoke from the incense. Mm -hmm. So I'd like, to, um, I'd like to bring up a couple things before we get into the nitty-gritty here. Please. Um, I'm over here in Israel, and, and I've been um, going to different, quote-unquote, holy places. So one of the places that I spent on Sunday, which is the High Holy Day for um, some denominations, I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the reason I wanted to go on Sunday is I wanted to see, uh, I wanted to see uh, worship in action. And if you've ever been into uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on a Sunday, there's nothing like it. Because when you walk in, you literally have three or four different groups that are doing their Sunday morning worship service. Now, one of them gets to have the most holy place. And can you tell me, Jonah, where you think the most holy, the Kodosh HaKodoshim oh, is? Man. Where's the I, most holy I, place I, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? You know, I've never been there, but I imagine if there's a pulpit, that's that's got to be it. The pulpit? No. Okay. No, no I mean, I, mean you, you, I, I don't know. I have some friends that have never walked into a church. I know you've been in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So do you know where the Holy of Holies is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? Now, I would assume, um, not being a Catholic or, or a Christian of any kind and not really knowing, but I would just assume the holiest place in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the tomb where Jesus was supposedly laid, um, according to the Catholics and Greek Orthodox and such. Is that not That's right? That's a great assumption. That's a great assumption. And so what I wanted to do is I, I wanted to see it for myself. So I went there, and the reason I'm bringing this up is there actually is a connection here, guys. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. Mm -hmm. So I went down a Sunday morning. I walked in. Um, and I decided I wanted to see this. And sure enough, I saw a replication of what Aaron had to do in order to deal with the Day of Atonement. I watched a rehearsal of the Day of Atonement uh, activities in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Really? Yes. Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm confused. And, let me say, how, how and I have it on this? video. And I've got it on video. Wow, it's got it on tape. <laughs> what does it mean, Keith? Why were they doing this? Sorry, guys. The reason I'm bringing this up is because what I was watching, and, and this is really the reason I'm bringing it up, what I was watching was an attempt to take Leviticus chapter 16 and to apply it on a weekly basis with the, their holy of holies. They consider that the sepulcher itself where Jesus, um, where they believe that Jesus uh, was buried, 
to be on the order of the Holy of Holies. So what they do is they have their incense, they take their incense, they have the singing, they have all of these things that they do. And one of the biggest things they do is they take these 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 um, sensors, and I was actually taping it and started coughing. I got so close with the smell of the, you know, the incense in your mm. nose, and they're singing, and this all this, this is preparation to enter this holy, holy spot. And I was watching this, thinking about what we're doing, and I got to tell you guys, it's scary because it's almost like let's take some aspects, and of course people know this as they're listening, let's take some aspects of the parts of the Bible that we think we can replicate, that we can kind of add and, and add to, and this happens to be one of them. I mean, it really is weird to mm. watch it. Wow. <laughs> so so what's the answer? What's the holiest spot? Was it not the tomb? The holiest spot yeah. is the very thing you said. The holiest spot is the is the is the, oh, the, the sepulchre itself. The actual grave. Now having said believe. that, I've been I've been told that next to the sepulchre is this spot where the, I believe the Greek Orthodox that they say is the center of the entire world and they say that's the holiest place in the world, although maybe not as holy as the tomb, I don't know. And yeah, um, the strange thing is yeah. there you have, and I'm not making this up, in that room, looking down upon this spot, which they say is the Greek Orthodox Christians say is the center of the world, is this triangle, and in the center of the triangle is the all-seeing eye. And it's the weirdest thing. It's just like on the U.S. dollar bill. Don't know what it's about. Don't know. Something something going on there. That is. So anyway, I guess my, my, my only point was is that I was watching this, this, this activity, uh-huh. which is sort of a... a takeaway from this actual action of Aaron and what the what the thing is but yeah, okay. again the point being here that that the difference between the holy of holies and then him saying him saying here tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place mm-hmm. behind the curtain so i i guess i can i'll just i'll, I'll, I'll let us discuss this for a little bit before i, I bring up the next thing because i don't want to take over here but this is an exciting chapter for me okay well, well then yeah, this is now were they wearing the holy linen Okay. Oh, absolutely. They were wearing the linen. I want some linen like this. The holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen... T- you know, honestly, I would love to get around in a linen turban. I just think that would be so cool. Anyhow, these are the holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on and uh, he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his house. Now, this is what you were talking about, Nehemiah. He shall take Mm -hmm. the two goats and present them before Yehovah at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots. Now, what does it mean to cast lots? He's what, he's throwing dice, or what's he doing? Well, so the way it's usually understood is there's two um, pieces of parchment, and on each one he'll write, on one of them he'll write, La Yehovah belonging to Yehovah, mm-hmm. and the other he'll say La Azazel, to Azazel, or belonging to Azazel, and he'll stick them in a box or <laughs> something like that, and he picks one out. Okay. And the one, and the, you know, and, and the first one he puts on, you know, the first sheep, and the other on the, or goat, excuse me, and the second goat, and that's how he decides which one will be slaughtered and which one will go to Azazel. Right. Now, now the question is, what is Azazel? Mm-hmm. And um, that's not entirely clear. It's obviously something to do with the desert. So some say it's a specific desert, possibly in the area of Gaza, because the Hebrew word for Gaza is Aza, and this is Azazel, um, which you could translate as the, the Gaza of God. Um, but then others say it's an, actually an area um, which is in the, in the Judean desert to the northeast of Jerusalem. So it's not entirely clear exactly what Azazel is, but it's obviously some area or location uh, in the desert. Mm-hmm. Keith, I've got a uh, scapegoat here. Absolutely. Also do I. 
Okay. There so it doesn't, doesn't say Azazel in yours? It doesn't say Azazel. This is, we've what? got scapegoat. It's called Wait scapegoat. a second. So it says he sends it to the scapegoat? But no, no, what I've got no, is... No, it's a lot for the scapegoat. Translation. Yeah, one, one lot for, uh, for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. So in Hebrew it says one lot for Yehovah and the other for Azazel. And then later on he sends it to Azazel. So what does it say in um, verse 10? Read that translation. Okay, so, verse 10. Well, it goes on. So let me go from 9. Aaron shall bring the goats the uh, on, on which Yehovah's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering, but... The goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before Yehovah to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. What? That's what I've got. Keith, what do you got? Help me out here. You're kidding me. You mean Nehemiah? What it says is, this is no, why we're talking God. about this. It says. What are you talking about? Leviticus 23, says, verse 10. And the goat which uh, before, came upon it, the, the lot for Azazel, I, shall stand live before Yehovah to make atonement upon it. To send it to Azazel to the desert. Azazel is a place. Okay. All right. And, and, in, and in Hebrew, when you're really upset with someone, in modern Hebrew, you say to them, Lech la Azazel. Go to Azazel. Oh, truly? <laughs> uh, yeah, in modern Hebrew. Um, <laughs> but Azazel is a place in the, either in the Judean desert or in the, or in the northwestern Negev. That's what I was just talking about. It's one of those places. Uh-huh. Um, either near, near Gaza or possi- more likely in the Judean desert. Um, in any event... Um, <laughs> you send the, the goat into Azazel, and the point is that then the goat goes free and takes away into this remote desert, takes away with it the um, the um, the sin, mm. and uh, and makes atonement by taking away the sin, which is really interesting because the living goat that walks away and survives is the one that it makes the, the atonement makes and carries atonement. away the sin off to Azazel to the desert. Now, um, now, Keith, this yeah. this brings us back to. Uh, Day, I think, if I remember correctly, Leviticus 5.11, when we were saying, uh, you know, atonement can be made with fine flour. Uh, doesn't that fly in the face of, uh, the, you know, we had the discussion about there is no atonement without the shedding of blood. Now, here's another example, right? This is another example, isn't it, Keith? Well, I, I mean, and again, I know that we, I know that we have three different uh, approaches as far as the translation here of the, what we're calling the scapegoat, uh, the Azazel. Uh, but that Azazel being a place, so then, so then this idea of scapegoat is a, um, it, it, is a what? what? What's the technical term that we're using here? Because is well, there a know, name for this particular goat? It, it, it's interesting because when, you, when we talk about scapegoat, right, we're, goat. we're saying someone is the scapegoat. It's, it's, it, that's the person okay. that you pick on that just sort of receives all the, all the slack because... Okay, I understand that, but what I'm saying is that in the scripture here itself, we're saying we're sending it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. That's what the NAS says. Mm-hmm. We're sending it into the wilderness as a, as a scapegoat. Leviticus 16:10 in my in my favorite other version says, um, we're making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. So, okay. Well, here now, let me read you from two other translations. J, JPS Jewish Publication Society has while the goat designated by Lot for Azazel shall be left standing alive before the Lord to make an expiation with it and to send it off to the wilderness for Azazel. New Revised Standard Version, which is a Christian translation, has Leviticus 16.10, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. There it is. So, um, and in the Hebrew it clearly says Azazel. So, I I believe you. You know, it's interesting. This is important. This is important because what, and the reason I think we want to slow down here is because when you and I, Jono, hear the word scapegoat, we have an image in our mind, okay? The scapegoat is, the, you know, this is, this is the focus. The scapegoat is the, is the one that, 
it, he's the one that gets in trouble negative. and takes the heat for it's everyone the negative. else. Yeah. But actually, in this situation, he doesn't have such a bad deal. No, he gets to live. He's the one who gets to live. So yeah. game, no, no, I'm saying he gets to go to Azazel. He gets to go gets free to in the desert. Sure. Exactly. And look, a goat so, can live in these deserts for, for quite a long time. As long look, as it I'm finds water, there's up. plenty of, I, of grazing ground in the deserts. There it I've, is. I've sat and talked to the shepherds, and I've watched the goats, and it's amazing what they do. They go up and they sit on these rocks, and they go and find grass in places where you and I could never. But the point is, the scapegoat, which I've always seen as the negative, actually is the one that brings atonement. Is that what you're saying, Jonah? That seems to be what it says. That seems to be we what it says. better check this, because this is important. All right, well, let's double check this now. This shall we, is a pearl. Shall we, shall we go further into it? Because it does sort of unpack it a little bit more if we read, if we read on, if we read further. Shall we okay. do that? And hey, Aaron, do that. Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as, as the sin offering, which is for himself. Now, that's pretty clear. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before Yehovah with his hands full of the sweet incense bit, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil, and he shall put the incense of fire uh, before Yehovah, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. So we were talking about before Nehemiah. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat, right, the one that's been chosen for Yehovah, uh, kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for... Now, Now this is what I've got. It says, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. Now, I, I start to get confused here. I mean, this is... We are getting to the goat for Azel, but but before we get there, I want to deal with the goat for Yehovah. This is... It, it, Nehemiah, it says in verse 15 that it is... For the people. That's what I've got in my translation. But in 16, it says to make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for their sins. Uh, And so he shall do it. Now now it says here, he shall do it for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst Mm -hmm. of their uncleanness. Then verse 17, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting where he goes to make atonement in the holy place, it says now until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, it says, and his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. Verse 18, that he shall go out uh, to the altar that is before Yehovah and make atonement for it. Now, which which one is it? I get confused when I read those verses. So Who really, it? it's all of these, meaning what's happening is the, is the children of Israel are, are through their sins, are, are desecrating the tabernacle, and it's the job of... Aaron and his sons to prevent them from doing so. And so this atonement is really for everybody and, and all these things. There, He's um, making atonement for the desecration of the tabernacle by the children of Israel, which should have been presented, prevented by the Aaron and his sons. Mm-hmm. So he, so all of these really need atonement, all for the same thing, which is that, look, the children, there's all these rules that we read in Leviticus about... You know, you um, you the, you know, the woman sits in the seat, and you touch the seat, and sure. you know, the toilet seat, and all that. Yes. You said it, and not literally, but uh, really, the point is that um, there's all these rules, and, and in reality, it's almost impossible to maintain a perfect state of ritual cleanliness. Really, what you would have to do is each person coming to the tabernacle would have to purify himself just before he walked in, mm-hmm. and wait until sunset. And um, you actually find right. Uh, I was there just the other day. 
uh, two days ago, uh, the southern steps as you approach the um, the southern steps of the of the Temple Mount leading into the ancient temple, mm-hmm. there's all these mikvahs, all these ritual baths. Because practically, wherever you're walking and you're going to you know, shake someone's hand or touch someone or you're mm-hmm. going to end up becoming ritually unclean. And, um, and the point is that it's very difficult to maintain this perfect state of ritual cleanliness. And so Yehovah says, okay, I know you're not going to be able to do it perfectly. Do your best. And there'll be this atonement, this general atonement for everybody and for all these things mm. on Yom Kippur. And, and I think that's interesting that this is so important that Yom Kippur becomes the focus of um of atonement for uh the ritual impurity that uh, wasn't per- you know maintained in relation to the tabernacle. Okay, so, mm-hmm. so let me get this straight in my head, Keith. As we mentioned mm-hmm. uh, last Torah portion, we mentioned the leprosy of the house that Yehovah placed on the house, and that the uh, the priest does this, he does that to atone for the house. And uh, we made the connection with this section here, saying that it, perhaps it is. Because of the person, uh, his sins, uh, that, that the leprosy was brought upon the house. And this is, am, am I right to say that this is because of the sins of, of Israel uh, within the, uh, the holy place, uh, the, the tabernacle, the altar, and so on and so forth, that uh, this sacrifice is made to atone for those things because of the sins of Israel? rather than for the sins of Israel. Do you you see the difference of what I'm saying? In other words, it's a result because of the sins. This is what we're going to do. Sure. Right. Okay. So we're good. So we keep going. So this is uh, energy. Okay. So verse 20, when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, there it is again, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, uh, he shall bring the live goat. Now, here we are, the scapegoat, right, Keith? This is Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their transgressions concerning their sins, putting them, the sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities uh, into an uninhabited land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Wait, 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 wait. So let me let me just let me just back up for one second here. In Nehemiah, you can just keep your ears closed or go get a drink of water or something on this one, okay? Because <laughs> Jonah, okay, you go get some water. Because here's what I, here's what the image is. So the image is, and there's some parallel here. The image is, okay, we're going to take the sins of the people, we're going to place them on the goat. Mm-hmm. We're then going to have someone that's going to lead the goat out to Azazel to the to the wilderness. And you would think the next thing that would happen is since all of the sins are placed upon the goat, mm. that this person would then raise their hand and sacrifice this goat. Sure. That, I mean, he, here that we are. The, the sins are played, placed upon the goat. There is a transference so goat, made. So let me, okay, the transference is there. The sins, he's carrying the sins of the people, the community. Mm-hmm. He's out into the wilderness. And at this point, we're expecting for someone to raise a, a hand and slice its yeah. throat or something and spill its blood. Sacrifice, and then there's yeah. atonement. That's right. But that's not what happens. And, and But it, something's missing here. Well, that gets sent out into the wilderness. This is what we understand to be called the scapegoat. This is the goat for Azel. Okay. Okay. Hey, now listen. Now listen. Look, the, 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 the goat has just had all the, all the sins of the people of Israel have been transferred. For, to, I mean, what is the... I tell you what, if I was that goat, I'd be looking for a counselor quick smart. I'd be moping around in the desert going, oh, I'm so guilty. I'm so full of shame. I'm the most miserable goat in the world. I'm so bad. Maybe not. Okay, moving right along. No, I, I think it's interesting. <laughs> no, I just think it's interesting that, um, that, the, that the parallels only go up to a certain point. 
and 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 I think that this is where I think this is why why we even are slowing down a little bit and looking at Azaz, Azazel and and the issue of scapegoat and the goat being sent. Mm. See, for me, what happened is if I read the first section of this from the Day of Atonement, I quickly move to the details of what Aaron has to do, and I'm still thinking about that goat, but I'm not thinking about the, the application of the goat. I'm not thinking about the uh, the practical sides of the goat. I'm thinking mm. that the goat somehow becomes the one that gets that gets slaughtered but in fact we find that that's not what happens so by the very word using the word scapegoat you know if you're the scapegoat then then what do you what does that usually mean well that, that usually means that you're the one that takes the heat for everybody else but you I, take all, the heat and the punishment falls well, upon think you think about the word yeah. scapegoat where it comes from it's the goat that escapes it doesn't get well there it is fair enough there it is no that's that's a good so I just, I just want to, you know, I think it's worth it to slow down to see that because there is a sort of a, 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 I use the word sometimes sleight of hand, but it's something just transitioned real quickly without actually thinking about what actually happens. And so these mm-hmm. are the parallels that take place, at least from my tradition, up to a certain point, and then the parallel drops off. So there it is, the scapegoat. Well, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine there's got to be someone out there who says, well, the, the scope for, the goat for Jehovah, that was Jesus at the crucifixion, and the scapegoat, that's Jesus at the second coming. No, look, I've I've heard that one. I've also is, is heard, there not someone who says that? No, I've heard that one, but I've also heard that the uh, uh, one was Jesus, one was uh, uh, Barabbas. Uh, Keith, have you heard that one? Okay, so but still, why? What, what about so the Barabbas sin? takes away the sins? Well, that, what I, that's what this. That, well, he's no, the no, one that got set free, right? I'm, I'm I'm bringing this up from the perspective of sensitivity. Here's where I'm bringing this up. I'm asking the question: Where do this? Where do the parallels drop off? And the parallels definitely drop off here because this goat. And it clearly says, let me just read this. It clearly says in verse number 10, it says, this goat is to be presented alive before Yehovah to be used for making atonement. So this goat is in the process of making atonement and it doesn't die. This is the goat that's supposed to make atonement and it doesn't die. Can I put... Can I can I play the the devil's advocate or, or I guess the Christian's advocate as it were here? Go ahead. Um, which is go. that which is that um, you know I mean I think you're taking this too literally, Keith. Um, you know, and and I've, I I last week I was giving a, a lecture um, over at the Mount Scopus campus of Hebrew University, um, and I was talking about uh, and Keith was there and I was talking about metaphor and allegory and and how how some people take it too far, and you know it'll say Judah is a lion. And they'll say, okay, if Judah's a lion, therefore Judah walks around in the street and poops. You know, and that's, you know, and the point is that when you have a metaphor or an allegory, not every characteristic of, of the thing that's being compared to applies to the, uh, the thing that you're comparing it to or the thing that's Very nice. being compared to. That. Okay, Mr. In other words, Mr. you can't Advocate. take every single aspect okay. of, of okay. a lion and say that applies to Judah. The point when you say Judah's like a lion take, is he has some of the attributes like of a lion. A I'd like to spend a card, Joe. Okay. I never Keith, do it. Keith, go ahead. Since he wants to be, since, since he wants to be sensitive to, to to my 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 background, mm-hmm. so then tell me then, Nehemia. So, is this goat atonement or not a go- atonement? Oh, obviously it is. It says it is. Okay, so then, so then, so then we shouldn't bring it. We shouldn't look, go that far down. Look, you have several different down. things in this. You have several different things in this passage that accomplish atonement for for different things. So you've got there's a bull that Aaron is bringing specifically for his house, and then you've got the goat for Yehovah, and then you've got the goat for Azazel that's sent out to Azazel carrying away the sins. And each one of these has some kind of function for atonement. So look, if if you wanna if you wanna um, say, okay, well, this is a symbol of, of the atonement that will be accomplished by, you know, according to some theology you have, 
Um, I'm not telling you to do that or not do that. Obviously, I'm a Jew. I don't you know, believe that. Mm-hmm. But if someone were to do that, I think it would kind of be ridiculous to then come afterwards and say to them, oh, well, what about this aspect where they took the innards and they burnt them? You know, the innards of your guy weren't burnt. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol. I think you're taking it a little bit too literally and, and, and beating the Christians over the head with it. <laughs> okay. No, no, I'm actually being sensitive. To th- it. I'm trying to ask myself uh-huh. the question, where does the parallel go? And where does it end? Listen, That's what my I, question was. You know, another one, another common one that I heard, uh, that I've heard on a number of occasions, is that uh, the goat for Yehovah, from the tradition that I've come, the goat for Yehovah is is Jesus or Yeshua. That the goat, the scapegoat, the goat for Azel is the devil, the Satan. Satan. This is another one that I've heard. Listen, there's there's any number of of, uh, of parallels. See, that, that just people, gets stupid because because then what Satan carries away the sin. Yeah, what because Satan is, <laughs> atones for us. I mean, that's just ridiculous. But it's not an unusual one to hear. There's all sorts of well, different uh, parallels. Well, look, here's the takeaway for me, which is if you want to if you want to interpret these things symbolically, first understand what they literally mean. Mm-hmm. And what I've that, seen so many right. times happen is people end up doing what you call wagging the tail wagging the dog sure. and what they'll do is they'll decide on what the symbolic meaning is and then based and on the fishing. symbolic meaning they'll start to interpret it literally and say okay well this is what it means because we it has to fit the symbolism mm-hmm. and and they never understand what what the basic words mean you know first understand the literal meaning and then we can talk about the symbolism and the symbolism doesn't always fit exactly with what you're trying to compare it to i mean you know it's just like judah's and a that, lion again i mean not every aspect of a lion applies to Judah. You know, you, you use your head here. Mm-hmm. So this okay. is my reason for bringing this up because I want, I do want people to be able to understand it first, and then ask yourself, does there need to be a parallel? See, my the reason I love the show, the reason I love what we're doing, and doing it from the perspectives that we're doing it, we're trying to find common ground on what does the Bible mean. Mm-hmm. I think at least at least two of us are. I'm not sure about the third one. <laughs> What? Wait, who's the third one? <laughs> okay, and he who you releases, I'm just he who releases no, in Jerusalem. <laughs> no, here's no, no, here's what I'm trying to say, you guys. Okay. And I want to say this to the people, and we can move on. I just think this was an this is an important one because oftentimes it can be thrown out. It can be thrown out. Um, here's what happened here in the second first century. Here's what happened in the temple, and here's the connection. When in fact, and I can go give you a thousand examples of this, where it isn't first. The first issue is not what did it mean. The first issue is what do I want it to mean? Mm-hmm. And what I want it to mean, and what it means, often is two different things. So that's why I wanted to struggle through that. I appreciate uh, everyone playing their role, and now we can move on. So what I do mm-hmm. want to talk about here, because this is a section dedicated to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in. In the Hebrew year, and I've got to talk about something that happened on a Yom Kippur 38 years ago, which which is something that really changed the the people of Israel forever. Which was um, what, I, what I'm referring to as the Yom Kippur War, and um, it's actually something that I've I've given a lot of uh, study to, and and mm. because on uh, October 6, 1973, Yom Kippur of that year, the there was an invasion of Israel, um, uh, a surprise sneak sneak attack. By the Syrians and the Egyptians, and they actually were backed up by um, many different countries. There were actually um, North Korean fighter jets uh, backing up the Egyptians and attacking Israel. Mm-hmm. You had uh, elements of the armies of Libya and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Iraq actually sent a major uh, military force, um, which by itself was larger than all of the Israeli forces in northern Israel. And um, so it wasn't just by two countries they were attacked, by numerous uh, Arab and non Arab countries. And um, 
And it almost uh, meant the end of Israel. I mean, there was almost, people were literally talking in terms of the second Holocaust. And the way in which they stopped with this military um, attack, this surprise attack, is, is incredible. It's, it's a miracle that rivals, in my opinion, anything uh, you have in the Tanakh. Um, and, and I'm going to talk specifically really quickly because I, I know it's not the subject of the program, but really quickly I want to talk about one particular story, Please. which is the, 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 one of the pivotal battles in the northern front against the Syrians. So the Syrians invaded Israel with 1,400 tanks, which is incredible. I mean, if you read about uh, some of the major battles, tank battles in history, like the Battle of Kursk, I mean, it, it, it rivals that. It, it, it approaches that. And if you include all the, all the armored personnel carriers, some say that it actually out, uh, was, was larger than the Battle of Kursk. Israel on its side had 177 tanks. So they were outnumbered almost 10 to 1. Uh, and in, and in the, major, the main part of the northern front where the main battle took place, they were outnumbered 15 to 1 at the beginning of the battle. And, um, and, and it's, it's incredible. After four days of fighting, they managed to stop the Syrians. And uh, and push them back, mm -hmm. and and how this happened is is I mean it blows my mind. So one of the really exciting things, th this key battle was called the Valley of Tears, and it was called that because after the four days of fighting, the Israeli forces looked out into this valley. They were standing with their tanks over the valley, um, and they saw it full of destroyed Syrian tanks. And there were something on the order of 260 Syrian tanks and another 260 or so armored personnel carriers and other armored vehicles. I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. And this is an area maybe two or three miles wide. And it was full of all this destruction. I mean, it, it blows my mind. And uh, one of the amazing things about this is the numbers involved in the story. So it turns out that the Syrian 7th Division invaded Israel on the 7th day of the week. It was a Shabbat mm -hmm. uh, in the 7th Hebrew month. Now, up until now, I'd say, okay, that's just a coincidence, you know, numbers, whatever. I, I'm not impressed by numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, you keep looking at the numbers, and it turns out that the, the unit that stopped the Syrians in the Valley of Tears was the 77th Battalion of the 7th Israeli Armored Brigade, and they fought for about 77 hours. And, <laughs> and, after, um, and after about 77 hours, Israel was down to only seven tanks oh, uh, <laughs> remaining. They had three on a little hill called Hermoni, another four remaining over on another hill up on the other side of the Valley of Tears called Booster Ridge. And the Syrians have hundreds of tanks that are continuing to pour in to the Valley of Tears. They haven't even committed their, their elite reserves, which are T-62 um, uh, Soviet tanks that could storm through Israel. And I mean, they could have been in Haifa in a couple of hours and, and cut Israel in half. Um, so they're... They, um, they're standing there, seven tanks, and they're just about out of ammunition. And, and the radio broadcast going back and forth between the, the seven remaining tanks and, and, the, and, the, and the commanders is, we're out of ammunition, we want permission to withdraw. And they're begging them, they're saying, hold on for 10 or 15 more minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, finally, the four tanks over on Booster Ridge start to hand out hand grenades because they're out of ammunition. They've got wow. no more uh, artillery shells or shells to fire at the, at the tanks coming at them. One tank over on the other hill is uh, told, stand there. If they see uh, a Jewish tank, they might be afraid and stop. But he's out of ammunition as well. Mm -hmm. Just as they fire their last shells um, in the 77th Battalion, they, uh, 13 tanks show up under the command of, of an Israeli uh, tank commander wow. who had been on vacation in Nepal. He took an airplane back through Tehran, the capital of Iran, eventually ends up in Israel when he hears the battle uh, breaks out. He hears the war broke out. And uh, he, he has put together 13 tanks, 
which were damaged in previous battles, and they're being manned by people who escaped from the hospital in Sfat. Oh, wow. uh, because they've heard that the second Holocaust is about to descend upon Israel, and they say, uh-huh. look, there's no point in us laying in the hospital sick. Mm. We better go fight. And uh, these 13 tanks show up, and they start to fire on the, on the, uh, on the Sy- hundreds of Syrian tanks. Well, the Syrians apparently decided that they could never win. They said, wow, if reinforcements showed up, and we've been fighting for four days, forget this. And there's a fortress down in the middle of the Valley of Tears that the Syrians didn't even bother to capture. They were going around it to the right and to the left. And there's a guy sitting there with binoculars in the fortress, and he looks out into the, in, deep into the valley, and he sees a, a line of Syrian um, uh, resupply trucks coming towards the Valley of Tears, bringing we- weapons for the Syrians. Mm-hmm. And the, the line of trucks stops all of a sudden and starts to turn around and go back into Syria. And at that moment, they realized that they had won. Oh. And those 20 remaining tanks now, seven from the original battle, 13 reinforcements, they start to go down into the valley and chase the Syrians back into Syria, which yeah. is insane because, I mean, they were basically out of ammunition. They were with wounded men, and there's hundreds of the enemy, and they're, they're outnumbered, and they're chasing the enemy back into, the, into, the, into mm-hmm. Syria. Well, um, you know, we're, why do I mention all this? Because we're talking about Yom Kippur, and that's the Yom mm-hmm. Kippur miracle in modern times. And I actually wrote about this story in a book that I'm coming out with. I'm glad that you mentioned the book. I know uh, Keith has had the opportunity to read the book. I have had the, the opportunity to read the book. And I just want to tell everybody it is awesome. I cannot wait until it hits the shelves because it is just such a great book. And I just, it's amazing. It, it's amazing. It's amazing. So uh, stay tuned for the release of that book. Where are we going to pick up? It continues on in, uh, let's see now, a statute for... Well, we said it was a lasting ordinance when lasting it actually ordinance. takes place. Uh, for then, on that day, then, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before Jehovah. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. It, it, it continues on like that, doesn't it, in verse 34? Say forever. This, say forever. Mm-hmm. This, this shall be forever. an everlasting statute for you. To make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And uh, he did, as Jehovah commanded Moses. And that's the end of uh, verse 16. Oh, Amen. Amen. Awesome. Wow. 17. We continue on. What is in, what is in, now my little heading here in my uh, uh, New King James says the sanctity of blood. That's what I've got here, oh. Keith. The sanctity of blood. What? What do you mean it says the sanctity of blood? That's what it says. It says the sanctity of blood. That's my. That's the subheading uh, inserted, added into my Bible, uh, Leviticus chapter seventeen. You're kidding me. That's what it says. Mine says eating blood forbidden. Ooh. Okay. Very very different uh, subheadings. Yeah. Well, look, I, I so, think the key thing in Leviticus seventeen is that we're uh, first of all not allowed to eat blood, and secondly, what you do with blood is also regulated by the Torah. Uh, if you're bringing a sacrifice, the blood has to be brought to the altar. And if it's a non-sacrifice, then you need to make sure not to bring it to the altar because, you know, people would go and be out. And, and actually, you see this with modern hunters where they have all these rituals related to to the hunt when they kill the animal and what what they do with the blood. And some of them will actually drink the blood, um, as shocking as that is. Um, but what it's saying here is when you're out hunting, well, uh, whether it's a bird or, or, or a land animal – and you have to pour the blood uh, on the ground and cover mm-hmm. it with dirt. And the purpose of that is so that you don't catch the blood and pour it on an altar. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when it isn't uh, a domesticated land animal specifically, of the three species, bull, goat, or sheep, mm-hmm. you're required to, first of all, bring it as a sacrifice. And secondly, uh, pour the blood uh, on the altar. 
And then he has this statement here, which says, and this is, I guess, what the, the source of your um, uh, of, of your heading, uh, Jonah, and yours. Oh. It says in verse 10, and, and uh, any man from the house of Israel, from the uh, sojourner who sojourns among you, shall uh, who eats blood, and I will put my, literally it says, I will put my face against that soul who eats the blood, and I will cut it off from the midst of its people. And then it says in verse 11, for the life, and literally it says the soul, for mm-hmm. the soul is the flesh the blood it is the blood and i have given it for you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls uh for the uh for it is the blood um in in with the life it sh- or in the life it could literally be translated as well mm-hmm. um uh it shall make atonement so the the blood here of these animals is to be used for atonement and when it's not used for atonement you need to make sure not to eat it or to pour it on one of these um uh illicit uh, altars and that was one of the issues that they were dealing with is people would be out in the middle of nowhere and they'd say, okay, I'm not near the tabernacle. I'm just going to pour this on this rock over here because I don't want to lose the blood. I know the blood is a function for atonement. Mm. And the point is the blood must only be brought in the in the altar, in the tabernacle, and later the temple. Any other place where you're pouring blood is considered forbidden. And not only is it forbidden, it, it's actually a pretty big deal. It says in verse 4, into the, the entrance of the tent of meeting, he has not brought it. Let's start in verse 3. Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters a bull or a sheep or a goat in the camp or he slaughters it outside the camp into the entrance of the tent of meeting, he has not brought it to uh, bring it as a sacrifice to Jehovah before the tabernacle of Jehovah. Blood shall be reckoned for that per- for that man. He has shed blood and that soul shall be cut off from the midst of his people. So actually bringing a sacrifice and pouring the blood anywhere but the entrance of the tent of meeting and later the, the temple is considered murder. It's considered spilling oh, wow. blood. And what it's basically saying here is, yes, God gives you the permission to slaughter animals, but that blood must be brought as uh, to the entrance of the tent of meeting as a sacrifice. Now, Deuteronomy 12 has an exception to that, which is if you're too far away from the altar, you can then slaughter an animal as a non-sacrifice, mm-hmm. but then again, you have to make sure to spill the blood on the ground and not pour it as mm. uh, an atonement, because blood poured anywhere outside of the tabernacle or the temple is considered to be murder, according to uh, here, Leviticus 17.4. Wow. You know what, and, and Keith, it reminds me of something that I read just recently. I, I'm just remembering it now. I read an article in the BBC, and uh, it was saying, you know, it wants to introduce more traditional meals back into the uh, into the British uh, cuisine, right? Now, one of those comes from Ireland, and it's called black pudding. Do you know what black pudding is? Ooh. The black pudding, which is blood pudding, isn't it? Blood pudding, but it's not just any blood pudding. It's actually the congealed blood of the pig. Ooh. Oh, my goodness. That's a traditional meal. It's a double meal. whammy. <laughs> That's a traditional meal over there. Oh. I mean, this is... It blows my mind. They want to make it more popular than it is. They want to bring it back into traditional cuisine. Anyhow, the so summary—that's uh, the summary on 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 blood. There it is. And and now, Jonah, you get to do chapter eighteen. All right, chapter eighteen. Then Yehovah spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel and uh, say to them, I am Yehovah, your Elohim. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do." And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Uh, You shall observe all my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am Yehovah Elohim. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. If a man does, he shall live by them. Keith, he shall live by them. I am Yehovah. I'll tell you what. Well, I think, you know, and and, and what I wanted to say about this is that you know, this is one, and I love these. I love these passages in Scripture 
they're like these 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 like really clear statements. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what's going to come after, or regardless of what's going was before, these are like these statements. Like you're going about the, the, the Bible, and then all of a sudden there's like this statement. And he and he and here's this great statement. He says, "You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. So, mm-hmm. your past, where you used to be, and where I'm bringing you in your future." This is what you must not do. You must obey my Torah and be careful to follow my decrees. I am mm. Yehovah your God. And when I hear those statements that come in the midst of whether it's Leviticus or Numbers or Genesis or Ezekiel or wherever it is, it makes me stop and say again, he's like, hey, now listen, don't do what they did. Don't do it the way you used to do it. Mm-hmm. And where you're going, don't do it. Do what I want you to do here. And then, of course, we have this section regarding um, and I think my 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 subtitle here says unlawful sexual relations. What does yours say, Jonah? I've got I've got a subtitle that says laws of sexual immorality. So laws of sexual morality, rather, is what I've got. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we could go through each one of these, uh, and uh, you know, and say, and you could do your normal thing where you could read each one I of them. We your should nice do that accent. with great detail. Yeah, <laughs> you won't and, go through and, and, uh, Or we could focus on <laughs> the the sandwich, and I want to I want to give you the sandwich. Okay, can I do this? Please. So the sandwich. So so. You know, in the in the midst of the sandwich, you have the meat. On the outside, you got the bread. So are the bookends. You know, you got the beginning and you got the end. Mm-hmm. But what I think is really interesting is is what he's is what it was what's being spoken in the beginning, where he says, "Do not do what they used to do. Do not do what they do. Where I'm taking you, obey my Torah." Mm-hmm. Then he says in verse 24, "Yes, do not defile yourself in any of these ways. What ways? The ways that you just heard. Yes. And this, I think the statement is really amazing. And again, I'm looking at the NIV here. Hopefully there will be something in one of you all's translation that makes it even more clear. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what it says in my NIV. Nehemiah, I also have my Hebrew version here. And I would like for you, if you, if you would be willing to read that same verse in verse 24. And I'm actually, I have an agenda here, everybody, so just bear with me. Sure. 18, uh, 24, and, and tell the folks what it says. Okay. You want me to read verse 24 specifically? or Yes, that? verse 24 mm-hmm. specifically. It says, Do not become uh, made unclean with any of these. Because with all these, the nations who I'm sending away from before you became unclean. Aha. Uh-huh. So how did they made themselves unclean? Don't make yourself. Unclean. They made. Th- that's what I was going to say. So also so translated, words, do not make yourself unclean with all these, because with all these, the nations that I am sending away from before you made themselves unclean. It could be translated mm-hmm. as a passive or as a reflexive. Sure. Okay. So basically, when I when I read this, I I think of the nations, and again. We can go through each of these verses, and I hope that people will read each of these verses. But the point is, this is how they became unclean or mm-hmm. defiled themselves. Wow. Yeah. These are the things that that caused them to be defiled, whichever way you want to, whichever way you want to say it. There were choices that were being made. I always, I always tell my sons this, you know, it, you know, choice mm-hmm. versus chance, and the choices that we make end up being there's a there's a manifestation of those choices. So the choices that they made regarding this aspect. On, on uh, defiling themselves through these uh, unclean ways of sexual uh, relations, caused them to be the ones that are being removed from the land, and then mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden he brings his people there, and what do his people do? The same thing. That's something we can talk about later. But can, I think can that's I read the another passage, which which, which yes, to please. me relates to this, 
which is Genesis chapter 15. And this is the promise to Abraham. It starts in verse 13. It says, and, and uh, back then he's Abram before he's Abraham, Avram. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, and he said to Avram, know, surely know that your, uh, your seed will be uh, a sojourner in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And verse 14, and also the nation that they serve, I will judge, and afterwards they will go out with great property. And then in verse 15, it says, and you shall come to your fathers uh, in peace, and you shall be buried in an old age. Verse 16, and the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete until then. Well, that's really interesting, because here in verse 16, what it's saying is the Amorites, that is these nations of the land that we call Canaan, Mm -hmm. um, they, they are... You know, God knows that they are at some point in the future are going to no longer be deserving of living in that land, and he's going to uh-huh. drive them out. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly, um, you know, so there's two things. One is he's giving the land to Abraham because he's he's been faithful and he deserves it. But the people of the, that land, they also deserve to be driven out. And that's what it's saying here in, in Leviticus 18 as well, that these were the sins of the people of this land um, that uh-huh. he's driving out. And he says... In verses uh, 27, for all these abominations, the people of the land who are before you did, and the land became unclean, that the land uh, not spit you out with your unclean when you make when you defile it, as it uh, spit out the nation that was before you. Mm-hmm. So the nation that God drove out and gave us their land, it was because they were sinful and no longer deserved it. And he's warning us, don't do it. If you do these sins, you also will be spit out of the land. So it happened to them, and, it happened you know, to I, you. Exactly. C- mm-hmm. Can I be really controversial here for a minute? And we may Please. have to edit this out, but can I be, can I be really controversial and, Please and do it. put Keith on the spot? So I want to understand, Keith, from the tradition that you come from, the Methodist tradition, the Christian pr- tradition where the Torah is nailed to the cross and it's all done away with, how can they look at this passage and say these things don't apply anymore when they actually applied before the Torah was even revealed and I think the reason they applied is that God expects just certain certain level of, of common sense that you um, don't commit sexual abominations. He doesn't have to tell you what they are. You're supposed to know not to commit sexual abominations. Even if you're an Amorite or an Egyptian who's never been commanded these things, mm-hmm. you're going to be held accountable for those, 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 um, those things. Sure. Whether you receive the commandment in the form of a revelation or not um, – so how, how does your tradition deal with this? Well, first of all, uh, Nehemiah, you're being entirely too hard on the Christians. Um, you're making a huge assumption, and the assumption is the first words that you said. How can you read this? You see, we don't read it. Oh, it, it's, not, it's, 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 it's not being read. We don't have to read it. This isn't something that has to be read. And, and this is why I'm so excited to be on this show. The reason that I love the Torah pearls, and Jonah, you've given us this opportunity, is for those who come from my tradition, I can guarantee you many of them have not read this. So what we're, what we're really talking about, and I, I can't answer it if you say they've read it and then they've made the decision, but for me, for many years, I would never read this. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Now we're reading it, and what's beautiful about it is this is the word of Yehovah. This is his word, which he gave to his people, his will, his way, his word. And now as I'm reading it, and as other people are going through this Torah Pearl sections with us, they're reading it, and now they're getting to ask the question, what does this mean for me? And, tr- mm-hmm. and truthfully, the sad thing is, and I know you were you were you were you know giving me an opportunity to say this. The sad thing is, is that it's not often read, and certainly it's not often applied. Yeah. So that would be my answer. Ask me that next year after people have read it, and they say, okay, so what does this mean for me? And I think that I think that the word of God is the word of God. It's still good for us today. That's my that's my approach, and I'm Amen. sticking to it. <laughs> Amen. 
I think we've concluded the Torah portion. Let me finish. <laughs> oh, Let me finish with this one. <laughs> now, but you know what? You know, we're going to end with uh, with a prayer from Psalm 119, verse 18. But before we get there, this is uh, just the final verse of this Torah portion. Verse 30. Therefore, you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable uh, customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am Yehovah, your Elohim. Come on with that. There it is. I I know I said I was going to get a chance to say something. I know we have at least a few minutes left. I have to say this. Uh, I'm over in the the land, and one of the things that I wanted to do this time that I didn't do last time is I wanted to go to the Temple Mount. And, And going to the Temple Mount this time was so completely different. In 1987, I came here on a a Christian tour, and at that point, the Temple Mount was open all day. People could go up there. You could walk and see the rock, the Abraham rock, the rock of Abraham, etc. I mean, it it was very open, etc. Well, I went up to the Temple Mount just um, what you uh, would have been uh, a couple days ago, a few days ago. Mm -hmm. So I go up to the Temple Mount. Now, before I get there, there's a sign from the chief rabbi, rabbi of Israel, and the chief rabbi says, for all Jews, it is forbidden to go to this holy spot. And he gives his explanation, etc. Well, I guess I was okay because I'm not Jewish and I'm not under the authority of the chief rabbi. But I went up to the Temple Mount because I wanted to understand what what, what is happening today. Mm. And you know, uh, Nehemiah, you um you were you were talking about you know what happened and how the people were spit out of the land and, and all these things. And there's a really interesting thing that we've done, and I have to thank the Nehemiah for this. We actually went um, underneath the temple about the first few days that we were here. And, and, and Hemi, I know, I know we, don't, we don't have a lot of time, but I just want you to explain to the people real quickly um, what, what, that, what the reasoning is behind that, the whole idea of going under the temple and what's under there. And then I want to say something, what's above, okay? Yeah, well, so we went to the, what's called the Western Wall Tunnels, and we know the Western Wall has been um, visible on the surface for really the last 2,000 years as the last remaining part of uh, the temple, of the Second Temple. And so Jews used to come and pray at the Western Wall. It's even called the Wailing Wall because when Jews come to it, and I know myself this happens, we're overcome with emotion and, and cry often mm. um, as the last remnant of the temple. And um, what they decided to do after the, the Jerusalem, the eastern half of Jerusalem was liberated in 1967 in the Six-Day War is they said, well, let's see how much more of it is you know, preserved, maybe underground. Mm. And they dug underneath houses. There, there's an entire uh, neighborhood built up against the, the the Temple Mount, and they dug through people's basements, below their basements in many instances, and they found the Western Wall continues for another approximately 500 meters, which is oh, about wow. three-eighths of a mile for the Americans. And so now you can actually go into the tunnel that goes all along the full length of the Western Wall. And what they found is something really amazing, which are these giant stones. And uh, one of the stones there is the length of a, of a bus and weighs approximately 600 metric tons, a oh single stone. Goodness. To the point where archaeologists say we don't know how they lifted up these stones. But they ask the question, what are the function of these stones? Why do you need a stone that big? And, and, the, and the answer that some archaeologists give is, is they say, well, the, the Temple Mount, uh, the wall holding up essentially the platform that the Temple Mount was built upon, um, that's what actually remains, that, um, that this retaining wall, um, they didn't use uh, mortar and so it's the sheer weight of the stones that hold these foundations together. And so there's yeah. essentially what we're seeing with the 600 metric ton stone is this massive foundation that, that stabilized the entire system. These massive foundations give the whole thing stability. 
Mm, and it's really so, exciting to me to walk through this and see it. Incredible. Cake. So I wanted to say, Jono, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about this issue of the, the laws and, and how to approach Yehovah and mm-hmm. cleanliness and all these things. And yet we have this Temple Mount that still exists today. Still today, there's a spot where historically, practically, archaeologically, we would look and say, hey, it used to stand over there. So be me for a second. I'm the Methodist. I come to Israel. I've been here four or five times. I come this time and we go beneath the, the, the old city of Jerusalem, underneath the Temple Mount. We see these rocks. We see the foundation of the very thing we're reading here. Mm. The foundation of what we're reading here exists today. So Nehemiah, you know, he's, he, he's from the Hebrew University. He, can, he, gets, he makes reservations and he takes us under there. It's really a wonderful, powerful experience. However, I couldn't go to the basement. I couldn't go to the foundation with also, also going up to the top. Now, everybody knows this is controversial. I posted this, I think, two weeks ago, where they had just sent an article out saying, if you're a Jew or if you're a Christian, you must not read your Bible. You must not pray. If we see you mumbling on the Temple Mount, you're going to be immediately removed. You, you all know about that, right? Wow. I mean, this is, and just so the people I mean, understand, the reason is that the Temple Mount is today, by Israeli law, considered to be a Muslim holy site. So if a Jew or a Christian goes into the Temple Mount, the place where Yehovah placed his name forever, and moves their lips silently, it's assumed that they're praying, and that's considered desecration of a Muslim holy site, which is a, a, a crime in Israel. Wow. So what I did, Jono, and I want to announce it here on your, your radio show here, uh, Torah, uh, you know, Pearls from the Torah, mm. uh, with Nehemiah on the phone, and Nehemiah told me, he said, Keith, listen, you don't want to start an international incident. But I did something really radical, and I don't know how I'm going to share it. I'll probably send it to you first. No, 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 it's about Jono. that. Keith, Keith, you didn't yeah. go up there and blow your shofar. So what I did, no, they wouldn't <laughs> let me bring my shofar. They, they confiscated my shofar every time I tried to get to the temple. In fact, one time they took it and put it in the office. I didn't know if I'd get it back. And the problem is, <laughs> it's not mine, it's Nehemiah's. So I was wondering how I was going to get it back, and I talked my way out of getting, getting it back. But one of the things that I did is I had a Muslim man take me to the Temple Mount Mm-hmm. Set up my tripod and proclaim the name Yehovah on the Temple Mount. And I did it, and I did it twice. And I did it knowing full well that they're telling me that if we see you moving your mouth, praying, or if we see you reading your Bible, we're going to remove you. And the reason I said I wanted to do it is to, is to declare again mm. that Yehovah is God. The earth is his and the Amen. fullness thereof. Amen. And I understand the political issues, and I understand that you don't want to be stupid. I understand all of that. But it literally was as if he opened a door and he said, I'm going to take you from the basement down to the very foundations of this place up to the platform right in front of the Golden Dome where they now let just the women go in to that one and the outlocks of the mosque with just the men on the other side. They've dug out so that they can put how many people, thousands of people can go in and worship there. They've, they've done all sorts of archaeological changes to the Temple Mount, but they can't change this one fact. His name is still there. And so I went there. And I proclaimed his name in front of a Muslim man, and nobody said anything to me. You're kidding. There was no Don't problem whatsoever. I'm, gonna, I'm telling you what happened. But You've got this on video? Is, is that, you, you videoed no, this, right? Of course I do. But the point is what we're talking about here. What we've been talking about, the Torah pearls, look, they said no Christian and no Jew. I'm a Methodist. I couldn't see it where the Methodists couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> the Christians is, and the okay. Jews can't do it, but the well, Methodists can do it. So I so, went to the Temple Mount. And I don't know when I'm going to – I don't know. I have to get out of Israel, I guess, before I do it. But I wanted to say on, on, on this, what's been powerful for me – and this goes back to what you said, and then I'll shut up for the rest of the day. What you just said was this. You said, how can um, your tradition read this and not apply it? And my point was simply that we don't read it. What's happened for me, Jono, what's happened for me these last 10 years mm. is to not only 
read the Bible, but to understand how to apply it. And one of the things that I'm understanding more than anything is that what was good then is good now. Amen. His word then is his word now. Amen. And I'm telling you something. I am inspired to be dealing with these, these kinds of passages because this is talking about approaching the creator of the universe, and he's made a way for us to do it. Wow. Amen. So anyway, I just wanted to tell you that, and uh, I, it was really a powerful I, experience. I can't Ephemia. wait to see the video. I can't no, wait I to see know. the video, Kate. Yeah, wait, wait until then. I don't know when. Wow, we're You're nuts. Go, anyway. You're <laughs> 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 That's amazing. You weren't arrested. So Nehemia, Nehemia and Yoel. Nehemia goes to, uh, they both go to the uh, the oh. altar of, of, uh, of Joshua. But you had to go one up, didn't you, Keith? You had to go one up. No, I wasn't one up. I, had to, I was down in the basement again, and I'm saying, wait a minute. So why can I be in the basement and I can't be up on the top? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking so anyway, forward to seeing that. I'm really awesome. looking forward to seeing Let that, and I'm sure that. I'm sure there's only you know one of the, one of the many adventures you've had uh, while you've been there on this uh, visit in Israel, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about that. And we maybe we'll get the opportunity to to go into detail with some of those on air in the not too distant future. But that is the Torah portion. So thank you for sharing that. That is really exciting. Nehemiah, can we can we pray the prayer? Would you so absolutely? And I and I think you know. I think considering that Keith is the one who went up to the Temple Mount and proclaimed the name, he's the one who should pray the prayer. There it is, Psalm 119, verse 18. Okay. Well, I just want to say this, that uh, it is this is an honor to be doing this, continuing to do this with the Word, because I really believe that the Word is um, applicable mm -hmm. for us, and we do need to constantly ask Him to have our eyes open. I'm going to read it here. Well, let me tell you what. I just feel like praying in the spirit. <laughs> Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity. I want to thank you that our eyes are in many ways closed, but in many ways you are the one who opens our eyes. And thank you for opening our eyes to see the wonderful things in your Torah that still apply to us today. Amen. There is no place where your eyes are not able to follow us. There is no place that we can hide from you, including where Muslims and others have declared that there's no room for um, you in many ways, and I just pray right now that you would continue to keep our eyes open and our hearts open and our minds mm -hmm. open to you and your will, your way, and your word that we might be your people called by your name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Keith Johnson and Nehemiah Gordon. You've been listening to Torah Pearls on Truth to You. That's truth number two, letteru.org. Next week, we are in Kedoshim, Leviticus 19. Kedoshim. Kedoshim, Leviticus 19, verse 1 to 20, verse 27. Until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. No, no, no I got to tell you something. All I kept thinking about was Nehemiah, and I said, you know, I guess I'll wait till I get back to the United States to, to release it. But I did the same thing. I went into St. Peter's Square. They sent the, uh, they sent the uh, cops over to the, to the obelisk when I was over there uh, reminding the world that there's only one Yehovah, mm -hmm. and he's our father. Mm -hmm. But the reason I did it was because the Pope, and I don't even think I told Nehemiah this, the Pope told me to do it. Because at the... Um, <laughs> what? No, I'm telling you. Did you hear his did. voice? And <laughs> No, listen, I have it on tape. I have the Pope telling me to proclaim Yehovah's name. Listen to me. So so the Pope comes, and so I'm, I'm, I've am I'm got my ticket, Jono. I went to the U.S. Bishop's office and asked for a ticket. I said, look it, I'm a Methodist. I need to see the Pope. So they said, usually it's a three-month process. But I went to the office, and they gave me my golden ticket. After they explained to me how the Pope was going to give me um, forgiveness for my, my sins, and my uh, I have it on tape where the nun explains to me what he's going to do for me. Mm -hmm. No, it's golden. So I get my golden ticket. I go to the to my seat. I'm on the seventh row. I'm right at the front. And they send the stinking Swiss guard over there. There's no Swiss guard anywhere else. He stands right in front of me. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, there's no... No, I'm telling you what happened. So he comes by. The Pope finally comes by. And the, and the, and the Catholics accosted me. 
so I couldn't ask him my question. Ah. So he gets up. No, he gets up to his his pope. He's in his pope mobile. Yep. He gets up there to start talking, and he he addresses Nehemiah and me, and he says this. He says in the Latin language, he says, "Sanctify God's name." What? Well, there talking you go. about he did it, and guess what he did? What? Outside in St. Peter's Square, mm-hmm. and inside St. Peter's Basilica, there are two witnesses. There's an inside witness and an outside witness to the name Yahovah. The Pope, as the last thing he said to the people, as we're all waiting, he said, sanctify God's name. So I went to Diablos to sanctify God's name, and the police came. So I got angry, and I went to leave, and I, I had Nehemiah's little shofar, and I blew the shofar in St. Peter's Square, because the Pope told me to sanctify God's name. Why do I say that? Because at the end of his preaching, he said the Lord's Prayer. There it is. Sanctify your name. So I did what he told me to do. Love alone. Please, came. All right. Well, look, I am looking forward to discussing this in some detail.